take your Bibles out, that'd be terrific, and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. I'd like to read from that passage, and then there's one in Luke I want to read from before we begin, or as we begin. Let us uh, pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you and ask that you to Cause us to be attentive to your word and to the words preached. I pray that those things I've prepared would land properly in in our souls and in our minds. That if there be a way in my preparations that is offensive to you, that you would please um, cause it to fall on deaf ears and correct me. Amen. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now let's turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 21 through 27. beginning in verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. That ends the reading. You may be seated. The uh, church has the highest calling, and she should never be a, she should never be ashamed of it. She's been given the responsibility to teach and disciple the nations. What is, what is she to teach and train in? Everything that Jesus wants. The things required to live with God and before God. All men, women, and children, no matter their race, 
and nationality, including all creation, exist for his purposes. He made us. Indeed, it is a very high calling of the church then to teach and disciple the peoples of the earth. Very high. And with this in mind, uh, Jesus introduces those metaphors in his Sermon on the Mount. It came in his sermon. If you are the salt of the, you are the salt of the earth, salt loses its taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. We've heard those metaphors in song since we were children. Someone asked me once, more than once probably, but I remembered the one time. What is the church doing in regard to outreach? What is the church doing in regard to outreach? And it's an important question, but I I confess the question kind of irritates me. There's a part of me that thinks, don't you know the mission? There's no church outreach program. The church is God's program. There is no church outreach program. The church is God's program. And the church is you, me, Her, him, we are the stones of his building, it says, the temple. When we, as stones, come together, we worship God here, we're taught his ways, we fellowship with one another and encourage each other in his word, in his law word. Sometimes we we challenge and correct poor behavior, or should. We must, everyone, pray and think and work and fashion our lives according to what? To his wishes. And if we do this properly, it is outreach. It has to be outreach. Because we belong to Christ's church, we improve our homes, don't we? For we want our homes to reflect God's character. So we train, correct, love, encourage our spouse and children, and expect each, including ourselves, to comply with his intentions for a family. A family, by the way, that is multi-generational and extended, so we don't abandon our parents and grandparents or brothers and sisters, in-laws, 
etc. A family maintains a household and holds possessions and begins interacting with other households by business in the marketplace. And so, we should behave and talk like temple stones there also. You don't go there and all of a sudden hide everything. Since the church is you, you take God's word into the workplace. As a lawyer, you present yourself and your logic and your ethic as a Christian. You are their hope. You are perhaps their only hope. Any other standard but Christ's makes no sense of law, justice, mercy. It doesn't matter if others like you or choose to disregard you. That is up to them. This is outreach. Certainly, you will at times need to agree to disagree with people in the world, even people in the church, perhaps. However, if the salt loses its saltiness within the legal profession, if you hide the city, then our courts are doomed to destruction. And haven't we seen some of that? in the course of time. The same goes for every profession and calling. If God's word is withheld from the field of education, then we will return to the dark ages. If Christians do not speak up in their political callings, then we can only expect the legislation of barbarism. If scientists bite their tongues about creationism, then others will fill the void with unbridled theories and inhuman experiments. If salesmen do not exemplify honesty and the goodwill of the kingdom of Christ, then underhanded and ruthless greed will eventually foil fairness in the exchange of goods and money. This is God's world. There's no getting around it. And the church defines all things. The church does. It defines all things with God's word for the world. There's a sense in which we own life. We are taught it, his word. It is preached to us. We, we read it. We, we learn how to work and eat and sleep and relate by it. So anywhere you work, God expects that you will be the church there. And this isn't to suggest... <laughs> this isn't to suggest you become the the sanctimonious office secretary who is up into everybody's business. It's not what we're talking about. Please. 
nor do you want to become a Christian zealot overflowing with false bravado as you spout off your opinion in regard to every world event. First, we don't know it all. And second, Jesus did not teach self-righteousness. He condemned it. Third, our, our lives need a lot of work. So humility is or should be the order of the day for us. Fourth, we should be motivated by love for others, even our enemies. But, fifth, Jesus still said the church is to be the city on a hill, not a hidden city. So don't take all those other warnings and close your mouth and lock the door. So how you work, your ethic, is important. But also how you control your reactions in the midst of imperfect things and imperfect people. That's a credible demonstration of how you obey God, is how you react to the imperfection. How you treat your coworkers, your boss, your customers, your competition. That's a tough one. Tough one for a salesperson. How you treat your competition. Your suppliers. And even more difficult, yet it's not unnecessary, even more difficult is how you how you figure out God's word in its application to your particular field of employment. I'll be the first to tell you, as a salesman, I did not have a lot of that figured out, what God wanted me to say and not say, how to go about sales, how to compete. I did try to live life correctly or properly according to his standards in my home and in my way of working as a salesman, but not in the profession itself. It's taken many years to start to think, how does God's word apply to this, to what I'm doing? But that needs to take place in every profession. I listened to a podcast this week with Tracy, and it was on the subject of in vitro fertilization. It's not something I've given a lot of attention to. Sorry. I just pretty much went about the business of fertilization, you know, the best I could, and left it at that. But I know it is an important issue people. But I was really glad for these two women who were discussing the ramifications of this applied science. 
this in vitro fertilization, the ethical, the ethical dilemmas of what they call IVF are on every side of that. Because when they have fertilization that's taken place, you have, according to historical Christian understanding, a life. Which means then that you have someone created in the image of God. And now some of these you have stored in a glass test tube, image bearers. And some you have frozen. And some appear to be less vital or vigorous as they should be. And so people are making these decisions that pertain to real human beings in the image of God. First of all, whether you should be trying to create such a thing in a test tube or not. But then secondly, what you do with the product Quotation marks for those just listening by audio. Product. Amazing. Eye-opener. But this is what Christians should do who are involved in different fields. They should speak to their field from God's perspective, at least as much as they know of God's perspective. They should bring God's word to bear upon their profession. That's outreach. What is the church doing for outreach? Do we have an outreach program? I feel like it's a question people hide behind or could hide behind because we like safety in numbers. We like to be the person who, you know, rakes lawns and doesn't have to say much, and that's outreach, church outreach, or the person who's washing the car free of charge, you know, and leaving a piece of literature because we don't got to really speak to our life and the people around us. It removes the pressure from off of you to think that you don't have to be the outreach. It removes the pressure from the individual Christian, the one who does not want to evangelize or share God's word and change their, their world. I understand that. I get that. Because we know There is potential when you start to open your mouth to some of these things. You start to press for a Christian ethic or a Christian understanding of your field. It can create tension. You share God's requirements with a friend or a family member, a co-worker, a magistrate, a customer. And these days, it seems... I think because we haven't been doing it, these days it seems the tension, it can devolve into open ridicule. 
could happen. A display of angst, taunting, apparently even rioting when people have God's standard imposed. And some in our society have become emboldened this way. Emboldened against God's word. Against those who would presume to speak God's word into their life or into our culture. They become pretty sure of themselves in their opposition. And here we are growing up in what's felt like, at least for the older people, more of a Christian-influenced culture. And it seems incredible to us that there are plenty, apparently plenty of wicked and vociferous people out there. But it was not incredible to the early church or the church at different points in history. No matter, the church remains the light of the world. It's the salt of the earth and the city set on a hill. And you are her outreach. It doesn't mean that the church as a particular congregation cannot speak to things in a public manner and and should. And there are many avenues that are open to churches today in the form of public proclamation, teaching, discipling. And we should be taking advantage of those. But this other thing about you being the outreach, I think it's from our baser nature, right, to be afraid of ridicule. We want respect. We want to self-preserve. Our self-interest can create, really, a lovelessness for the other. And so, we don't share with them. Because we love ourselves more than we love them. And it is easy to be ashamed of Jesus Christ when the world's opinion means so much. Jesus warned of this in John 15. He said, the world loves, his, the world loves its own, but it doesn't love those but it doesn't love those who want the world to change to become what God expects. The world doesn't love those. Jesus said the world actually hated him because what? He said he made them guilty of their sins. So, though we hold mankind's only hope for restoration... If we don't share it but hide it, if we don't share it but hide it, then what have we done? 
We've concealed from them the answers they need for human flourishing, which is God's word. And though Jesus said a city on a hill cannot be hidden and that it is a very good thing, too many try to burrow underground. The fearful prefer a city in a cave, which looks like a a life where one tries to conceal their Christianity when they're out and about. As someone said, the timid Christian bows the knee to Jesus, but when he's around unbelievers, he acts like he's tying his shoe. We must not be so ashamed that the city gets hidden or goes underground. And I think one way we do this is that we try to be nice. We try to be nice rather than to be good. The rationale is, if I'm really nice, then people will like me. And maybe it will crack open the door to share God's word with them. They will see what a good person I am and wonder, why is she like that? I want that. And then they might ask me. That way of thinking is not without merit. It's not without merit, but there is a good possibility that the word of God goes unheard. Poor parenting decisions. Poor parenting decisions and the godless education system has overturned the once Christ-influenced Western world. Other things played a part, but ultimately, if the children go astray, who gets blamed? But the parents... Nowadays, it is common for Christian children to return from college thinking differently about Jesus and the world than how they were brought up. And the church, the church has lost her voice. She's being, you know, incrementally, it seems, it feels like, cloistered into a ghetto, little closet in the house. It's not too late, of course. Of course it's not too late. It will never be too late. If each Christian would simply become the church outreach again. Furthermore, Jesus' metaphors about being salt light in the city on the hill, these he included in that long sermon on the mount. That's where these were inserted. And you know what? They came right after this, and you've got to hear this. Those metaphors are placed in his sermon right after this text in verse 11 and 12 of Matthew 5, I believe. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then he gave these metaphors. You are to be a city on a hill. Okay? You don't put a light under a bushel. 
A salt that loses its saltiness is, is good for nothing but to be trampled under the feet of men. So then he shares those metaphors after warning about persecution and blessed are those, okay? And then immediately after the metaphors, he says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. And he goes the rest of the sermon applying the law of God to people, even into their inmost places. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. So a city on the hill... If you hope to go unscathed in this world by being super nice to people and, and then sharing God's word, maybe, maybe, but only if they ask. Well, I don't think you're given that option by God. I don't think that's an alternative way. It could be a way. It's not an alternative way. No, our privilege and responsibility is higher and frankly takes more risks it takes more risks. So, outreach should not be based upon a model of bringing donuts into the office or doing someone's laundry for them or raking the neighbor's leaves or taking a casserole to a family with a sick mom. All those are great. They're nice and good and can and Sometimes should be done, but what? Out of love. This is out of love. You love people. You do things like that. It's a neighborly thing. But even the heathen do that. We've got more to give. Something that the heathen do not possess. Like Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. I remember as a young Christian sitting in a Christian worldview conference. I was excited about it. They had promoted it on the Duluth, Minnesota radio station that I listened to. But as I sat there, there was going to be lawyers and, and people who influenced, you know, um, the public square, let's say. But as I sat there listening, I began feeling spiritually and intellectually exasperated by one of the presentations in particular of a very popular Christian lawyer, a radio-type Christian lawyer. And he advised those who were listening to him... Not to use, don't use biblical language, he said. Or quote from scripture while you're trying to be effective in public. In other words, people might shut you down or they might ignore you while you have said something and quoted Jeremiah or, or used stark biblical language in and refer to the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe. They might ignore what you have to say. Why? Because you identify as a Christian. He says you won't be effective that way. 
And I thought they're kind of disillusioned. I guess I was disillusioned. I guess kind of... But I determined shortly after that to say, so be it. So be it. If, if, if we're rejected because we're Christian and we're teaching God's word, what else do we have to offer? So let them reject you. That's on them. What else can we offer people than God's instructions and purpose for life? What else? You got some other program you want to implement? Some other God you want to promote? God of pluralism? Atheistic humanism? Have at it. So we've tried trying to build a company by which we operate according to God's standards. We pray together at times. We speak of God in our mission statement. We use normal biblical words like bearing false witness or gossip or envy, dominion, Christ's kingdom, debt, honor, and so on when we deal with various things that come up within the company. We tell potential hires that we are a faith-based company and that we often pray at company gatherings, asking if they were going to have any issue with that. I had someone ask me recently if I ever thought our Christian approach to business might get us in trouble legally in our hiring process. I said, I don't know why it would. We hire non-Christians. They just need to understand how we go about business. I expect God will always have to protect us from people or governments that oppose him. But ultimately, and this is what I said, I wouldn't want to be that person who tries to stir up trouble against God and his people. Furthermore, to try to run a company apart from God would go against the very reason we exist. Now, this <laughs> shouldn't cause you to think we do everything properly before God. We are still made up of sinners. We're still learning, we, so we think imperfectly still as well. But we're trying but this is outreach, and the world needs it. It's not, concocted by, it's not concocted by a church filled with programs. This is like real life stuff. City on a hill outreach. The outreach in which every Christian is simply being a Christian who is motivated in their calling to conform it to conform their calling, to conform their life to the Word of God. God forbid that the church has reduced its high calling and dangerous responsibility to being nice and hoping someone will want to be like us. The non-believer's attention is really not supposed to be directed toward you, right? 
as if you were the great person. Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. God gets the glory when you live his way. Jesus is touching upon that same concept, really, that Moses touched upon in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 10. Listen to what Moses said. And compare the two. Moses said, See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear All these statutes will say, surely this great nation is wise and understanding people. For what great nation, Moses said, is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Moses was not giving them an outreach program. He was just telling them to live. Live as God prescribes. That's God's outreach program. When we live to obey and love him, then he is glorified and the rest of men see it. This all... This all presupposes that your world already knows for whom you live. Do they know for whom you live? This means that you would have to have had to identify yourself. Show your affiliation to Jesus. No. You don't need someone else to provide you with an outreach program. You are Christ's outreach. Don't hide it. You are part of an historical and noble church. A noble church knows its place. It learns God's word and depends upon it and proclaims it and is not timid about living according to this knowledge and requesting all people to repent and do the same. This noble church sends out noble people to turn the world right side up. Each in his own calling, each in his own neighborhood, each in his own family. Let's pray. Lord, I pray and I ask that you would tend to me And to all those hearing this message, that by your Spirit we would be invigorated and made less fearful and more confident in who you are and what you want us to do. Give us courage, Lord, that we might be your ambassadors into our various fields into our neighborhoods and in our families. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.